Father, you are God Almighty, and right now, knowing that you are God Almighty, we look to you for the insight, the direction, the wisdom, and understanding as only you can give it, Father. The truths of your eternal word are so rich and so abundant. Father, we need the insights to grow into the greatness of what you've called us into in Christ. And Father, we thank you for what you've opened our eyes to so far. And Father, we look forward to greater heights of understanding these powerful, powerful truths of this new covenant and all that's involved with them. Father, that by their power, our lives would be transformed into all the abundant fruit that you've designed from the very beginning. Thank you, Father, for allowing us the privilege to take part in your kingdom and all of its richness and goodness. Father, you are worthy to be praised and honored because of your great love that's so clear and your goodness that's just so abundant. Thanks, Father, for all that you've done and you, all that you continue to do. And that all of your people everywhere would wake up to these realities in Christ. Amen. Well, we are going to be looking at the subject of propitiation in two parts tonight and then Thursday night also at 7 o'clock Pacific Standard Time. Um, tonight, of course, being part one. If you have a Bible, if you'd open it up to Romans chapter 3. This uh, two-part little series is actually a follow-up to the class we did on Romans uh, about a year and several months back. So that what we went through with that class would be a great help uh, in understanding this, or this being a great help in understanding that material. Uh, both of them work together very well. So this book of Romans was a document sent out by Paul as an apostle in service to the Lord Jesus Christ and not himself so that this gospel of Jesus Christ would be made known to all the nations. So the letter was sent out to make known the gospel in simplicity. Well, in studying the subject of the gospel, this subject of propitiation becomes crucial Crucial because without it, saints, really all the great truths in the book of Romans kind of dangle in midair. But with it, it gives a strong foundation upon which every one of these truths in Christ rest. Apart from propitiation, it just doesn't have a foundation. This is essentially the foundation of the gospel. You could call it the righteousness of God. Propitiation. Uh, the mercy seat, uh, forgiveness of sins. But in Romans here, in chapter 3, verse 25, it is called propitiation. And first, just to read uh, from verse 23 into verse 25. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation by his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness 
because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed. So, Jesus Christ was displayed publicly as a propitiation. Another way to translate this would be Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation by his blood through faith, to declare God's righteousness, because in his restraint God passed over the sins previously committed. Jesus Christ is the propitiation for our sins. Well, what's propitiation? It's kind of a big word, but it just simply means appeasement. Um, it means to gain or regain the favor of. Another one, another way uh, to say this is when someone is wronged, propitiation or appeasement would be righting that wrong. You know, fixing the error, making things okay. You know, like between two parties, if there's some kind of fight or disagreement, propitiation would be to to where it would end in, you know, it's all behind us now. I'm satisfied. Everything is fine. Don't worry about it. That's propitiation in a practical way. Well, this is what God did through the cross of Jesus Christ with all of our errors, all of our faults, our sins, our shortcomings, everything that lacks. It was all done in light of, uh, the propitiation was done in light of our sins so that we would be forgiven, completely absolved of every fault, every problem, every error. And this is propitiation. So when you look at this, saints, uh, to get a better understanding of this, the Old Testament uses this term mercy seat and this is where I began to gain some uh, insights into this propitiation to really understand why this word propitiation was used. Uh, uh, it took looking in the Old Testament to see the mercy seat. Um, so, again, this word propitiation in the Old Testament is translated mercy seat. So to take a look at this, if you go to Numbers chapter 7, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, chapter 7. The mercy seat was the place where God would speak to man. See, this is the place God would meet man. In Numbers, chapter 7, the last verse, verse 89, says, Now when Moses went into the tent of meeting to speak with him, to speak with God, he heard the voice speaking to him from above the mercy seat that was on the Ark of the Testimony, the covenant, from between the two cherubim. So he spoke to him. See, this is where God met with Moses, to speak with Moses. See, it's above the mercy seat, which was upon the Ark of the, of the Covenant. It was like a lid to the Ark of the Covenant that they kept in the tabernacle, the tent uh, designated for this purpose, then ultimately the temple that Solomon built. So the mercy seat sat as a lid on the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Testimony, where the words that God had given as the covenant for all the children of Israel. And it says from between the two cherubim, we'll get back to that point, but this is where God spoke with Moses. In Exodus, the second book, Genesis, Exodus, chapter 25, 
this is this section that communicates what this mercy seat was and what it was for. In Exodus chapter 25, starting in verse 17, it says, You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Now, keep bearing in mind, Jesus Christ is our mercy seat. Well, what does this mean? We're going to see more detail here. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and one and a half cubits wide. You shall make two cherubim of gold. Make them of hammered work at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end and one cherub at the other end. And you shall make the cherubim of one piece, in other words, one piece of gold, with the mercy seat at its two ends. The cherubim shall have their wings spread upward, covering the mercy seat with their wings with their wings and facing one another. The faces of the cherubim are to be turned toward the mercy seat. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. That's the ark of the covenant, where the, where the words of the covenant went. And in the ark you shall put the testimony which I will give to you. There I will meet with you. You see those words? There I will meet with you, just like he met with Moses over the mercy seat. There I will meet with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim which are upon the ark of the testimony. I will speak to you about all that I will give you in commandment for the sons of Israel. Now we're going to come back to this. I just wanted you to see the framework of the mercy seat was essentially for God to speak with man. This is the place God chose to speak with man. Why? The mercy seat was where blood was shed, which we're going to see in a minute. Where blood is shed for the covering of man's sins, that's where God would meet with man. So at this place of the mercy seat, God would meet with man. But here's a kicker. Look at Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. God would only meet with one man, the high priest, and only once a year. Once a year. But never without shed blood for the sins. In Hebrews chapter 9, starting in verse 3, verses 3 to 7, it says, Behind the second veil there was a tabernacle, which is called the Holy of Holies. Now this is the small room that the mercy seat was positioned in. Having a gold altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with pure gold in which was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod which budded and the tables of the covenant. So in other words, what we would call the Ten Commandments, etched on stone. Verse 5, And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Take note of that. We're going to come back to that point. These cherubim are always acknowledged around the mercy seat. So above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle performing the divine worship. But into the second, that holy of holies where the mercy seat is, into the second only the high priest enters once a year, but not without blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. So 
Do you see that very important point? The high priest could only enter once a year, but not without blood. Not without blood. See, if you go to Leviticus, chapter 16, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, it gives the answer as to why uh, never without blood. The, the two sons of Aaron entered the Holy of Holies this way and approached the mercy seat without blood and they died. Without the covering of sin, man cannot, being un, unholy, cannot approach a holy God. You know, this is behind that whole thing, you know, throughout the Old Testament, you see, we don't want to see the face of God lest we die. We don't want to enter into his presence lest we die. We can't enter his presence. He's holy, we're unholy. He's righteous, we're unrighteous. We can't enter his presence. So the priest, the high priest, only once a year could enter the presence of God, but not without the shedding of blood. Well, in Leviticus 16, it shows these two men, the sons of Aaron, doing just this, approaching the presence of God without blood. Chapter 16, verse 1, Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they had approached the presence of the Lord and died. The Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron that he shall not enter at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat which is on the ark, or he will die. For I will appear in a cloud over the mercy seat. Aaron shall enter the holy place with this. And it gives a list of things. But watch this. The first thing noted, with the bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. See, never without shed blood would the high priest be able to enter, or like the two sons of Aaron, they would die. So, with the shedding of blood, with the shedding of blood, uh, there is the ability to enter the presence of God. Well, Jesus Christ is our propitiation. He is our mercy seat. It's by his shed blood that we have access to God. Remember the veil of the temple was rent in twain right after Jesus Christ dies? That's in Luke chapter 22. The veil was rent in two from the top to the bottom, opening up the Holy of Holies to mankind. Just an astounding reality. Saints, think of it. Though only the high priest once a year could enter the presence of God. Now we have open access to God because of Jesus Christ's shed blood. This is an astounding reality. <clears throat> this is why God always hears the prayers of the righteous. Because we're righteous through the blood of Jesus Christ. He always hears our prayers. His ear is always open to us. He has made himself completely open to us through the blood of Jesus Christ. What a great truth. Well, what about these cherubim? This is an interesting thing, and this will help put this together. If you go to Genesis chapter 3, Genesis chapter 3, if everyone can make sure their phone is on mute, uh, it sounds like somebody doesn't have their phone on mute. That would greatly help the other saints. Appreciate that. In Genesis chapter 3, here in verse 24, this is after man disobeys God. So 
so in verse 24, God drove the man out. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim. What do cherubim do? Watch. And the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way of the tree of life. To guard the way of the tree of life. See, these cherubim, one of the things they do, whatever they are, uh, they guard, they protect. See, there's a, a, a great record. Well, we should just look at it. It's in 1 Kings chapter 8. 1 Kings chapter 8. I know we're jumping around a bit here, but don't forget the notes are available by request. Um, and with this understanding, saints, I can't tell you right now in the last several weeks what this subject uh, growing and understanding in my heart has done. It's hard to put it into words. But the things that have uh, developed further for me um, have really helped uh, my personal walk with God. And I felt uh, with the Father, it was just time to share some of these things. So in 1 Kings chapter 8, in verse 6, Then the priests brought the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house to the most holy place. That's the Holy of Holies. Under the wings of the cherubim. Under the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread their wings over the place of the ark. Remember, they, they guard or protect. And the cherubim made a covering over the ark and its poles from above. So the cherubim covered the ark. Covered the ark. You know, we use uh, uh, if you know anything about... Uh, like chickens or a fowl, when uh, a mother hen has chicks and there's some kind of uh, uh, threat in some way, she gathers those chicks under their under her wings to protect them. Uh, it, like in Psalm 91, it says, uh, "We are uh, those who trust or rely on the Lord are gathered under His wings, essence under His feathers." protected, covered. You see it? That's what cherubim do. They cover or protect. See, in, in Genesis 3, verse 24, to guard the way of the tree of life. Saints, who is the life today? Didn't Jesus Christ say in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life? He is the life. See, he says, I am the bread of life in John 6. Or, I am come that they might have life. He is that tree of life for mankind. Well, the cherubim were guarding the way of life, the way of the tree of life, keeping man from entering it at that point, knowing that the entrance was going to come at a future day. Do you see this? It is through Jesus Christ's propitiation that we have entrance into life, true life, the way God designed it. That word life meaning life in its fullest manifestation. This is the way God wants man to live. And apart from the mercy seat, saints, this does not exist. Apart from Jesus Christ's sacrifice, how many people enter into the glory of God? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The next verses are about Jesus Christ being our propitiation. 
See, through him, we enter into this life. He is the life. So now if you go back to that Exodus 25 section, now we can take a look at some of these points in more detail. In Exodus 25, again, we'll start in verse 17. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. He's telling uh, uh, Moses what to do here in instruction. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and one and a half cubits wide. You shall make two cherubim of gold to guard the way of life, to guard it, to watch over it. Make them of hammered work at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end and one cherub at the other end. And you shall make the cherubim of one piece with the mercy seat at its two ends. The cherubim shall have their wings spread upward, covering the mercy seat. Covering, protecting the mercy seat. With their wings and facing one another. The faces of the cherubim are to be turned toward the mercy seat. Well, if they're going to guard it, they've got to face it, right? They're looking over it, watching over it. Verse 21, you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. In the ark you shall put the testimony which I will give to you. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are upon the ark of the testimony. So he says, this is where I will meet with you. Now, keep bearing in mind, Jesus Christ, with his death, he tore that veil which separated mankind out from this mercy seat. He, tore, he had it torn from the top to the bottom, opening up the mercy seat. In verse 22 again, God says, there I will meet with you. I will meet with you. From above the mercy seat, from the, between the two cherubim, which are upon the ark of the testimony. I will speak to you about all that I will give you in commandment for the sons of Israel. Saints, look at this point here. He says, I will meet with you there. Above the mercy seat, which is upon the ark, between the two cherubim. This is where I will meet with you. This is the presence of the Lord. I will meet with you there. And what is he going to do? He says, I will speak to you about all that I will give you in commandment for the sons of Israel. Well, who is our mercy seat today? Jesus Christ. His shed blood was the appeasement or the place of atonement where man is made one with God. The place of atonement where the judgment of God is withheld. That's why it's called the mercy seat. With judgment withheld, saints, God holds nothing against us. He has truly made us holy, separated out from sin by Jesus Christ's finished work. It is at this place that he meets with us. See, if in any way we get tricked to try to clean up our life, to make our lives better, so to speak, apart from Jesus Christ's work, saints, this is not where God meets with us. Our lives are to be positioned in this place of the propitiation, that we would never leave it in our hearts, that we would know with the confidence that Jesus Christ's work at Calvary completely did everything that needed to be done 
to take away all faults, frailties, shortcomings, and the rest of it. Fears, anxieties, inferiorities. That his work was a complete work. It is there that God meets with us. Do we now have a new covenant? Are there new words to this new covenant? Absolutely. Well, look what he says here in the close of verse, close of verse 22. He says, here's where I will meet with you and I will speak to you about all that I will give you in commandment. Well, Jesus Christ began a new covenant, so to speak. He fulfilled the old and brought the new into its full existence. Well, God will speak with us at that place of Jesus Christ being our propitiation. He will speak to us about all the words, all that he commands us, all that he has given us in these words of the covenant. Man, saints, if we really get this, this point right here, this is where God teaches us the inner workings of what he has accomplished for us in Christ. This is where the fullness of understanding comes from. It is meeting God at the place where all your sins have been absolved. Meeting God at the place where God, I, am no, I know with a confidence, you hold nothing against me because Jesus Christ did die for every error of mine, every fault, every shortcoming. See, to have that awareness, saints, this is the place where God meets with us. It's not like you got to walk around saying, Jesus Christ died for my sins. Jesus Christ died for my sins. It's the awareness of who you now are and what you are because he died for you. Look at it another way. Had he not died for you, where would you be? Well, the only thing you're left with is, like everybody else, Romans 2. Who shall escape the judgment of God? Who, how can that be possible? Nobody can escape the judgment of God. Next chapter, what we've been looking at, God didn't give us an escape from judgment. He put that judgment upon his son in our behalf. Our sins were appeased for. They, weren't, they didn't disappear. They were appeased by Jesus Christ. See it? It's not that they just disappeared. God just, you know, let them go. Just let them slide by. Every sin has to be paid for. Every transgression has to have its just consequence, according to Hebrews 2, too. So what did God do? He has to, you know, meet out the punishment. He has to meet out the consequences. So he did. He put all that on his son in our behalf. Our awareness of this, saints is the place where God teaches us the inner workings of the covenant, our new life in Christ, the fullness of God living in all of God's people everywhere. This is the way in which God has given for us to come into it. How can we approach God? Is it apart from this? Well, the sons of Aaron tried. See, apart from Jesus Christ's work, finished work at Calvary, there is no approach to God. And at this place of Jesus Christ's payment, God will teach us all about the words of our covenant. See, I don't know how to better say this in, in the uh, King James. It says that this is the place that God communes with us. And I, I want to point this out here in this last phrase in verse 22 of Exodus 25 that we've been looking at. He says, I will speak to you about all that I will give you in commandment. 
So this word speak is commune. See, he says, I will commune with you. This word commune, it's very interesting because it means to speak one with another. This isn't one way. This us communing with God isn't, oh, we pray to God, we talk to him. See, we speak words at him, that's prayer. No, prayer is a two-way street. He says, I will speak to you there. For us to talk to our Father, see, is a two-way street. Expecting God to answer, expecting God to give us the insight, because this is what he says he wants to do. This wasn't our idea, this new covenant and getting insight into it. This was his idea. He wants to teach us what it means that we are righteous, what it means that we're holy, what it means that he has made us eternal. See, what does it mean that we are one body, that Christ is the head? What does it mean that God wants to bring us into the fullness of God? What do these words mean? God wants to teach us. As you meet him there, Jesus Christ sacrificed in your behalf. Father, I know that he died for all my sins so that I could enter into your presence and here am I, Father, all ears. I want to know what you have to teach me. See, this is a two-way street. I will commune with you. We will speak one with another there. For some, this might be quite a revelation. But, saints, it's not long before this becomes commonplace, where God is talking to you, teaching you what it is to be a son of God. Not just about it, you know, when you're sitting there quiet in your, in your living room or something, but how about when you're in the midst of a situation that you know you're a child of God because Jesus Christ died for you. Therefore, God is communing with you. He's teaching you what he wants you to know, showing you the inner workings of his heart, his plan and purpose of eternity. See, this is what he wants for his people. So, really, Jesus Christ, our propitiation, realized, produces God's intended effects, among which it matures us into forgiveness of self and others because to hold no fault against one is to reckon Christ's sacrifice, to, re to hold a fault against one is to reckon Christ's sacrifice insufficient. Do you see that? If I'm to hold a fault against someone whom God has made holy, then Christ's sacrifice wasn't sufficient. Yet if I continue to grow in the realization that Christ's sacrifice was sufficient, that it did appease God for the sins of the whole world, saints, how can I hold a fault against anyone in this state? I can't. See, Jesus Christ's propitiation realized leaves no room for judgment against others. None. It also magnifies our oneness in the body of Christ, our oneness with each other. Because every one of all of our sins was paid for by Christ. See, Jesus Christ's sacrifice leveled the playing field. We all came into equal ground because he died for us. We are all left sin-free, you know, without sin attached to our name, because if it was, it'd be attached to his name, because we are truly his body. 
Jesus Christ's propitiation realized wells up compassion toward others, and this is all others, because all actions contrary to the love of God find their origin in Adam's sin and their solution in Christ's sacrifice. So, of course, Jesus Christ, being our mercy seat, is going to well up this compassion. It's not their fault. It's not our fault. It was the fault of sin entering into the world. That's what caused all the produce of sin. Every single thing that is contrary to the love of God. It's not their fault. So compassion just seems to come from nowhere. <laughs> till you know what the propitiation is all about. It also develops inner peace and joy through knowing that God never holds anything against us and loves us just the way we are, flawless in Christ. It also develops confidence and trust toward God. God who would love us to the degree of ransoming his own son in our behalf. Well, yeah, if he's going to give his prized possession, his son, of course it's going to build confidence and trust in him because if he's going to sacrifice his son, what's he going to do for you now? Jesus Christ's sacrifice also causes a growing humility in us because by it, we are reminded of our lack of worth to God before Christ's payment and our value to him now as a result of Christ's payment. So it builds true humility where you know you're nothing apart from Christ's sacrifice and you're everything because of it. God has made you his, his treasure, his prized possession. It also brings an awareness of our authority over evil forces arrayed against God's purposes. This is because they were all defeated by the cross, according to Colossians 2.15 and also Hebrews 2.14. See, this is why we have a growing awareness of our authority over evil forces. There's no authority of evil bigger than Christ. He defeated them by the cross. Why did he defeat them for us? Well, it's simple. If God designed this whole package in light of mankind, mankind kind of gives it up for grabs through disobedience to God. You know, the devil takes the reins, so to speak. Well, man comes back into the picture being faultless. There's no reason for the devil to have those reins. Oh, he say, no, you don't. I'm taking those things back. Jesus Christ died to defeat you. You're over with. His authority is over yours, and I'm in him. Therefore, thank you. I'll take those reins. And Jesus Christ's propitiation brings a continued increase of our realization of partnership with God our Father because by the cross, He eliminated everything about us which hindered that partnership. Saints, I don't know. Romans seems to open up with an understanding of propitiation. Jesus Christ is that mercy seat. He was that true life that now we have entered into, which the cherubim were to guard, to watch over, that man could not enter that apart from God's way. God made a, a, a pattern of that way in the old mercy seat of the temple, where only 
by bloodshed could a man enter into the presence of God, and it was only the high priest once a year. Well, now, through Jesus Christ's sacrifice, that veil of the temple was rent in two from the top to the bottom. Because of that, now, through Jesus Christ's death, we have entered into the very presence of God. And in this realm of the mercy seat, Jesus Christ's sacrifice and our awareness of it, all these realities of Romans become true and amplified. In this part one, we've been looking at what propitiation is all about. Well, in part two, we're going to do a, an overview of Romans in light of this truth. In preparation for that, for Thursday night, if you will think about the truths in Romans at least, uh, think about them, read whatever God, uh, God inspires you to do, in light of looking at these truths in Romans, just take Romans. We'll leave the rest of the Bible alone for now, but just take Romans. In light of Jesus Christ, had he not made that payment and appeased God for our sins, how does that affect that truth that you're looking at? You know, no matter what that truth is. I mean, you could look at uh, many of these. You look at peace with God in chapter 5, verse 1. Justification, you know, by faith in the end of Romans 4. Um, uh, you know, that uh, we now have no condemnation because there's no condemnation for them who are in Christ Jesus in Romans 8.1. Uh, you know, present your, your bodies a living sacrifice by the mercies of God. Mercies. Why is that stated that way? Jesus Christ is our mercy seat. So now we can present our bodies a living sacrifice. Why? Saints, because we're flawless. We're now presentable to God as a living sacrifice. To live in his presence. To live in the realm of his voice. Where we are communing with him and him with us. He's teaching us the words of his covenant. The whole uh, practical side of Romans comes alive understanding propitiation. Take a look at it. Read from Romans 12, 1 and following in light of propitiation. It's astounding. But some of these things we're going to be looking at Thursday night. So uh, in light of that, take the time to do what you need to do with the Father in preparation if you're going to be joining us on Thursday night. And again, we'll have this recorded so uh, uh, you, know, you can listen to it that way, um, you know, again, if you need to. Father, thanks for your astounding love and the great realization that you have done it all for us, Father. We did not have the strength to pay for our own sins. Your son had to die. A perfect, perfect blood shed for all, every one of our sins. Leaving us in the state, Father, of perfectness with you. Righteousness because of Christ's work. Thank you for making this clearer and clearer to each one of your people everywhere. And Father, for just opening these truths up, maybe like they've never been seen before, Father, because... By Jesus Christ's work, and only by his shed blood, do we have your ear. And because of that, Father, you have opened these truths up to us and continue to. Thanks, Father, for making this clear and clearer to us, your people, everywhere, all over the face of the earth. And it's by that name of Jesus Christ, that name that will be recognized all over the face of the earth one day, that we pray. Amen.